Hey, before we get into this episode today, I just wanted to let you know that we would greatly appreciate if you liked, subscribed, left a review, five stars, five testicles, whatever you want to call them on this podcast. That will help this podcast rank higher in search results so that in the future, anybody who's searching for resources when they've just been diagnosed or have just become a survivor or is a caregiver, they can find this podcast more easily and listen to your stories. Thank you so much. And let's get into the episode. The stories shared on It Takes Balls are unique to the individual sharing. Always speak with your trusted medical provider for treatment options specific to you. Welcome back to It Takes Balls. Today I'm joined by Ian Freed. He's a teacher and coach from New York. Ian, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So talk about uh, you know your life as a teacher before we get into your testicular cancer story. Yeah, so I mean, I've been teaching for 10 years. My, my mom was a teacher. Her mom was a teacher, sort of just in, in the blood and... Uh, yeah, I started the baseball program at the school, won a city championship in four years and kind of been doing that as along with teaching, coach girls basketball. Keeps my keeps my year busy for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I like your mustache too. Is that for Movember? It absolutely is. Uh, my wife will be happy to see it go, but it's uh, for, for a good cause. So um, she, she toughs it out for November for sure. <laughs> All right. So let's get into it. So you were diagnosed in, um, 2020. Yeah, it was August, 2020 still. I mean, like you said, from New York city, I mean, pretty much still peak COVID, you know, people a little weary to go to doctors in general, weary to go outside. But, um, you know, I, I noticed my, my left, uh, was rock solid. It was a little bigger than usual. Um, I just knew I had to get it checked out. Um, yeah. So called the PCP and they could only see me like 10 days later. Um, cause they were, you know, not taking so many people in into the office at a time still because of COVID, uh, finally got in there and, you know, in this day and age, I had already Googled everything that I possibly could. So I knew what was happening, but they needed, they still needed to do the ultrasound to sort of confirm what was happening, but they couldn't schedule me for an ultrasound for like another week. And that was sort of when I just kind of stopped messing around and said, no, no, no. Like I need to, I will go somewhere else for a quicker one. And they were able to turn it around the next day. So how long was it from when you first noticed it being hard and uh, large and before you went to the doctor? It was 10 days. Okay. So you, right. I mean, you notice it right away. Were you doing self checks regularly or how did you um, notice? I, you know, it wasn't like a purposeful self check, but it was just like, I noticed it in the shower and mm. it was just, you know, the red flag went off immediately. And, you know, at that time I didn't know what it was. I just knew something was wrong. Um, and you know, then, called the doctor, did all the Googling and was able to sort of, and by that point, sort of self-diagnose before, you know, even getting in to see the doctor, the ultrasound, et cetera, et cetera. Talk more about that, um, you know, where you did the, the Google thing and you kind of self-diagnosed, but before you could go officially find out, I mean, what was that like? It was, it was uh, pretty nerve wracking. I mean, you know, you, you hear that word cancer, right? And you just know that that means that, literally there's something growing inside of you replicating and like there needs to be an intervention in order for it to stop. Um, so, you know, I had some doctor friends who were like, you know, 
a couple of days, a week, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world, but you know, for me, it was, it was everything, right? Like I, I need to, I need to see a doctor. I need to, unfortunately, you know, at the time I knew I need to get this out of me. Right. I, I, I knew from the Googling, like you said, the first and sort of only first step is the orchiectomy, right? You gotta, mm. you gotta get it out no matter what, that's the first thing. So I'd already, before I'd even seen the doctor, I sort of had come to terms with that, right? Like I'm going to lose the lefty, but life is going to go on. But like, I need to get this ball rolling um, <laughs> as, as fast as possible. And you have a kid, a child. Yeah. He was born April, 2020. So, you know, he was four or five months old at this point. Um, my wife was an absolute rock star um, between taking care of me, taking care of him, working pandemic. I mean, everything, it was just uh rock star, superhero, whatever you want to say, whatever superlative will just never be enough. So um, she, she crushed it. That's awesome. How was that, um, you know, having a newborn when you are first diagnosed, I mean, what's going through your mind there? I think if anything, it might've been a little bit of a blessing because you're doing so many other things, right? Like middle of the night diaper changes, you know, keeping them entertained. So at least it was something to take my mind off it for tiny bits at a time. You know, um, it was summer, I'm a teacher, so I wasn't working. Um, so I had free time, which was a positive and a negative, or I could spend a lot of time with my son um, to take my mind off of, um, you know, this, this horrible thing that was happening uh, inside my body. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of my, one of the things that my doctor said was just to stay on routine as possible. And that would help, you know, kind of keep, keep you healthy. Yeah, I, I can definitely agree with that. Thankfully it was summer and we we're able to kind of go for walks and, um, you know, just be outside. You know, we have a place up in Massachusetts, so we got to get away from the city. Um, you know, especially, you know, with, with you had COVID on top of all of this stuff and it just, it just makes a difficult situation even, even harder. Um, yeah, because, you know, you want to go to the doctor, but you said I'm not supposed to go outside. But so really I'm trying to balance that out. You know, I, I run through my head, you know, if this had happened, if it had happened pre COVID or maybe, you know, when COVID was even worse, I might've just said like, Oh, well, you know, let's wait till it dies down a little bit. Like don't go to the doctor. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I run that through my head, you know, how, how it could have played out differently. Um, and it's scary. That's why, you know, I think that's why I'm coming on with you because you got to just sort of, you know, bite the bullet, swallow the pride, call the doctor, go. It's, it, it needs to be done. Talk more about um, going through it during COVID because, you know, that is something like you, you mentioned people weren't going really to the doctor at the height of, um, the height of things. And that's one of the things that I guess we'll see the effects of years down the line is people who weren't getting screened for things. Sure. I, I mean, you have the best sort of cancer research and cancer doctors in, in the world in New York city, but it's, you know, is this really where I want to be going right now? I, I mean, not only do, am I worried about myself, but you know, I was very early on in my sort of disease timeline, but you know, I'm sitting in waiting rooms 
with people who are in the middle of chemo treatments or radiation treatments who are severely immunocompromised where, you know, God forbid if, if I had had it and not known it and I was passing it on. I mean, it's, it's crazy, but the risks definitely outweighed or sorry, the rewards outweighed the risks um, as far as, you know, needing to get it done. But, but like you said, I think there are definitely people who because of COVID either won't go to the doctor or put it off or just think it's nothing and it'll go away on its own. Um, you know, thankfully, thankfully I had those 10 days before I went to the doctor in the back of my head, I'm like, all right, I'm going to wake up in the morning and it's, it's going to have gone away on its own. And yeah. it didn't. So um, if anything, having that little lag between the doctor, between when I found it and going to the doctor, you knew it wasn't going to go, going to go away. So um, let's, hopefully for the future, you know, I want to go see the doctor tomorrow. I want to see the doctor today. Um, yeah. In reading your story, the big thing that you um, kind of wanted people to take away was um, advocating for yourself and, and elaborate more on how you did that. Um, you know, when they said we can get you in this date and you said, no, I need something sooner. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not an ultrasound tech, but I want to say that probably like the first thing they teach you when you become an ultrasound tech is to sort of not tell the patient anything because they're not a doctor, but I had the ultrasound and the, the woman pulled me aside and she was like, please follow up on this. You need to get this taken care of. So like, again, I sort of knew the writing had sort of been on the wall. Um, so I called my doctor right away and said, you know, I just had my ultrasound. You're going to see the results. Like we need to get this moving and they recommended me to a urological oncologist who I called and they said, well, he only sees new patients on Thursdays. And the first appointment we have is in four Thursdays. Wow. And it just, it made me so angry, but it also just like lit a fire under me to like, nope, this is unacceptable. And I'm going to do something on my own. So I called uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York and they scheduled their own ultrasound, scheduled their own blood work, sent the results that I did have to the chair of the department. And I had my orchiectomy less than a week later, right? It was, it was just like, and, and between having the orchiectomy and having my RPL and D scheduled, I still wouldn't have gotten in to see the first doctor yet mm -hmm. at my PCP had recommended. Right. So when you think about that timeline and people want to say, Oh, like, it's just a few days, it's not going to be that big of a deal. You know, when you start talking about weeks, right. You know, by all accounts, I found it as quickly as I could have, and it was still stage two, right. And it's still, it's still gone to the lymph nodes. Right. Um, so, you know, when you talk about that, then you could be talking about the difference between orchiectomy and surveillance or, orchiectomy and an RPLND like I had, or an RPLND and, you know, chemo or radiation, right? Or lymph nodes or lungs or lungs or brain. Like every minute does count regardless of where you are on the timeline. So, I mean, that, that was just sort of my big takeaway when I would tell people about it or come on shows like this, right? That's going to be the number one thing is, yeah, days might not matter, but every minute really does. Yeah. I think that's great. And you also wrote in here that, uh, 
you know, if you see, if you feel something, say something, I think, you know, that doesn't just go for terrorism. <laughs> right. It's not, it's not just for a package on the subway. Right. Um, you know, I, you know, when I sort of made a post on social media after I had already mostly recovered from my RPL and D I was still at home from it. And I sort of told my story on social media. Um, you know, people came out of the woodwork from high school that I hadn't talked to in a long time or even earlier than that. And they were just like, how did you know? how did you know, like, what should I be looking for? Mm-hmm. And I, from my experience, I was just like, I was in the shower and I just knew. Um, but then like you said, you know, there are very simple, you know, at home where you can really do sort of self-detection. Um, and I mean, guys like touching their balls. We can't, we can't <laughs> really like, and, 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 and like, like you just laughed. Right. But if, if I can get that across, right. Where, if, if one person kind of takes that home yep. and, you know, for most of my friends and most people in my circles, right. I'm the person they know with testicular cancer or who had testicular cancer, but somebody else is going to become either that friend or they're, they themselves are going to become that person. And if they can find it out a week earlier, 10 days earlier, whatever it is, and it's the difference between having surveillance or having chemo, right. Then I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, I think that, that's that's amazing and that's that's great. Let's go into uh, your the treatment that you had. You you said orchiectomy and RPL and D. Was chemo ever on the table for you? So chemo was on the table um, after my orchiectomy. It was sort of the discussion was had. You know, I think radiation was on the table too. Sort of all three were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thankfully the RPL and D was recommended because it was limited to the lymph nodes and you know, they were confident that that would be it and that the RPLND had like short-term, you know, recovery issues, right? Like I couldn't have seeds or nuts or corn for a year because of digestive issues associated with it. I was home for a month. Um, I was in the hospital for 10 days during COVID, mm-hmm. not the best thing in the world. Um, but when sort of you weigh that against the long-term potential effects of chemo or radiation, um, you know, it seemed like the best choice for, for me and my family to, to kind of do the RPLND and hopefully, and thankfully it did to kind of just knock it out. Um, whereas, you know, if you do the chemo or you do the radiation, the RPLND might still be on the table a year or two mm-hmm. down the line, where at least hopefully in my case, we do the RPLND and we could be done. And I'm still getting, you know, the surveillance blood checks and stuff, but um, yeah, it seems like the RPLND did, did the trick. Yeah. Do you remember the pathology of what you had? Yeah. So it was, uh, it was pure seminoma, um, which I guess also sort of lent itself to the RPLND um, where I know when you start getting those, those mixed tumors, it, um, the, um, the course of action, the course of treatment usually is going to be, um, you know, the, the chemo first. Um, so I think that sort of lent itself towards just starting with the RPLND as well. Right. Um, talk about your time that you spent in the hospital. Cause I was in after my RPLND for like three or four days. Was there anything that happened to keep you there for 10? Um, no, that was sort of just, you know, for, um, for Sloan Kettering in the city, that was sort of, the the norm they really gotcha. um went really slow as far as getting me back onto foods 
and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to just make sure that everything digestively was okay. You know, I, I feel like I didn't eat anything for a day or two, that it was just ice chips, that it was just water, that it was, you know, the clear liquids like soups. And thankfully I could have coffee finally, stuff like that. Um, before finally, I mean, then I was still on a zero fat diet for two weeks at home before I could slowly introduce, you know, the full diet. Did you work through, um, your, your treatments when you were recovering? Did you, you still teaching virtually or anything? No. Um, New York city had gone back in person by that point. Um, I had thought that if we were still working virtually, I could have after maybe, you know, a week being home. Um, but I ended up taking the month and, um, and then I, I, I went back to work. I did go back to work after my orchiectomy. Um, I think it was only like a week, you know, mm-hmm. summer ended and school started. And, but that was when I was in between my orchiectomy and my RPLND. So I, I did go to work for like that week. Um, and yeah, I mean, the recovery from the orchiectomy was pretty, I don't want to say simple, but it was pretty manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the RPLND was obviously a little bit more, a lot bit more intense. Is this something that you share with your students? Um, it's, it's something that I've shared. I share with my teams, um, at this point, you know, I think just with COVID now it's, it's still a little, you know, I'm in the room and I'm wearing my mask and they're in the room and they're wearing their mask and I'm on my screen and they're on their screen. So I don't really get that sort of, um, you know, interaction. I haven't been able to sort of build those relationships with my students yet. I think it's slowly happening, but with my teams, I, it's definitely something that I've, that I've brought up, especially with, you know, my boys baseball team, right? Because, you know, those are kids who are 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. And, um, you know, they, they fit right into that category of, you know, people that I want to let know. So, you know, worst case scenario, or sorry, best case scenario, they just touch their balls and worst case scenario, they find, they find it. They find something. Right. Um, so there's definitely definitely something along those lines for sure. Yeah, I think you're in a great position to kind of spread the word. Yeah, I think um, that's that age, right, where if they can have it in the back of their minds and then they go to college or they're out in the real world and then they can spread it on to just the awareness and just the idea of checking it is A, super important and B, also not that big of a deal, right? It's something that you can doing the privacy of your home and the privacy of the shower and the privacy of the bathroom. And you can just do it. And 99 times out of a hundred, you move on with your day. And, but when that one time hits, you know, the earlier, the better. How has your administration been with, with uh, allowing you to kind of talk about it with your students? Cause you know, one thing that people might say is that talking about your test schools is taboo, but you know, we're, testaments of it, you know, talking about it, helping. So, yeah, I mean, they, they've definitely given me sort of the freedom to do it on, on my own terms, like whatever I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's not one of those things that I'm beating anyone over the head with, you know, um, you know, I ha- I've had ideas, especially for this upcoming baseball season, um, to sort of maybe have like an awareness game, right. Where, you know, we all wear, you know, the, the baby blue or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, this is not, this is not a knock, but you know, breast cancer gets an entire month. Right. And, you know, 
until I had been diagnosed with testicular cancer, I had no idea that testicular cancer was part of Movember, right? I just thought that Movember was for prostate cancer and just like men's health in general. Um, but then you find out that it's actually a major component of, uh, of Movember, right? So last Movember, which would have been Movember 2020, right? I was still recovering from my RPLND, so I didn't really get involved, but I had friends who got involved on my behalf um, and then was able to sort of hit the ground running this year. But, you know, the more awareness, the better. I don't think that there can ever be too much. Um, and it is definitely taboo, like you said, but I'm definitely trying to, you know, rid, rid the stigma of that, you know, whether it's just, you know, cracking jokes, um, you know, the, the old saying, you know, when something that you really want, right. You give your left nut for that. And <laughs> I can always drop like, well, I already did. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, just little things like that, where you can sort of, you know, people laugh and then they're like, Oh yeah. Like you had testicular cancer and that's great. Like we can, we can talk about it or we don't even have to talk about it, but I know that it's in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I think that's definitely something that I'm proud to do and will continue to do. That's great. Um, have you had any lasting side effects from your treatments? Thankfully, no. Um, you know, I was, I was very, and you know, I'm, I'm in the Facebook support groups and, um, you know, I can't speak to the people who have gone through the chemo and the radiation, but when people are talking about the RPLND, you know, the recovery is very serious, right? Like I, I was following it to the, to a T right. As far as what the diet was, as far as, you know, I was getting out and I was walking two, three miles a day. I was drinking, you know, two or three liters of water a day. Um, and when my, you know, month hit, I was ready to go back to work. I was ready to, you know, start going back to the gym a little bit. Right. And, and doing some sit-ups and, and really getting back there because I, I took the recovery so seriously. And, you know, I, I feel like you're in that same, that same group on, on Facebook. And, you know, I read stories about people with their RPL and D and, you know, they're, they're having all these issues or they don't know, or the doctor doesn't give them, you know, the, the proper, you know, schedule to follow for after it. And I'm more than happy to share mine. I'm more than happy to, you know, um, ask it, ask people how it's going. Um, and it's super important because once those RPL and D, once the RPL and D is done and you go home, the recovery is not over, right? There's still a lot that has to happen and you're being trusted to do it at home And it seems like from the stories that I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard too, you know, a lot of doctors don't necessarily do the follow-up that needs to be done. So if we as survivors and people who have gone through it can walk people through it, I'm, I'm more than happy to do exactly that. Yeah. And you had yours done at Sloan? Yeah. Um, October, September 30th, 2020. Yeah. So Sloan is one of the, I guess there's IU and, and Sloan are at least the two like high volume centers that I'm aware of maybe Johns Hopkins as well. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's also one of the things that I, it always sort of just blows my mind where people are talking about wanting to have the RPL and D done, but the surgeon isn't super confident because he might own, he or she might only do one or two a year. Whereas, you know, at Sloan they're doing three or four a week. Yeah. Right. So when you say high volume, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And when you go to a place like Sloan, 
everybody's friendly, of course, but then, you know, they, oh, where are you from? And I say like, oh, I'm, I'm from, I'm from here. Like I, I took the ferry here, right? Like, yeah. um, like, you know, they have people come from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and, you know, thankfully being in New York, like it was literally in my backyard where I could just have it done and, you know, the best place in the world, you know, lucky for me, but I would, I would recommend for people who, if you have that situation where anything, I never want a surgeon to feel uncomfortable about doing a surgery on me. Um, so there, I mean, there are places to go, like you said, the high volume places. Um, I want to say USC in California does a bunch too. Um, but I mean, they're there, they're around. And if it's the best treatment, then you should be getting it done in one of the best places. Let's use this kind of as a segue to talk about um, you did sperm making before your RPLND and because that was because risk of the RPLND is retrograde ejaculation, which kind of happens less often at a high volume center. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily for both of us, we're, we're both good. Yeah. Um, you know, that was, that was definitely, a little bit of like a harrowing experience to, to do the sperm banking in general. And then to sort of think about why I'm doing it and you know, the, the what if, um, and then, you know, you have the RPLND, the doctor says, you know, I saw the nerve, I avoided the nerve, you're going to be fine. And then, you know, you're, you're recovering and you sort of are feeling okay. So you, you, you check, you test, you see what's up and, for the first couple of weeks, I was still, I was either shooting a blank or I, or it was like every other for, for a while. And it was, that was scary. Like to the point where I was calling the doctor and he, he was able to say like, no, no, no. I know for a fact that you'll be fine, but it's a question of days, weeks, months, like it will come back. And thankfully it did. Um, but the sperm banking was super important. My, my wife desperately wants a girl. And so, you know, we had to make sure, you know, cause you don't want to God forbid, look, like look back and say, Oh my God, like I had an opportunity, yeah, but I missed it. And also they were scheduling things so quickly, you know, my RPLND was set and I had to go to the sperm bank like immediately. I, I, I went, you know, three, it was every other day. I think I went like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then my RPLND was like that next Wednesday. It was like, once I got the clearance from the orchiectomy that I'm good, okay, let's start sperm banking so we can schedule the RPLND. Um, but yeah, it's, it's exactly as, what's the word? It's exactly as terrifying as you think it would be. It's like the fluorescent lights and the plastic cup and <laughs> like bring this up when you're done. And it's important. It's ridiculously important, but those were, those were some of the most uncomfortable moments probably of my entire timeline. Um, and that's another one of those things that, I mean, you want to talk about taboo, right? Like going, people going to, I mean, you have people going to sperm banks for all kinds of reasons. Um, and you know, you're, you're sitting there in the waiting room and you're kind of looking around and everybody's looking around and they're looking at you and you're looking at them. Um, but just get it done because it's, I mean, it's super important because God forbid, especially if like you said, you don't go to one of those high volume places. I feel like the risk for 
the retrograde ejaculation definitely uh, goes up a little bit. Are you keeping yours on ice until you have another child or yeah, um, okay. that's, that's sort of the, that that's been the plan. Um, it, so it's been a year, right? So they, they called me a couple weeks ago to, you know, we're still keeping this right. And uh, <laughs> yes. Um, but after that, you know, we'll hopefully have one more and then, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's no need for it. Let's move into, uh, you know, what your goals are in survivorship. We kind of touched on it a little bit with the baseball team and, you know, having an awareness game, but do you have anything else that you're planning? Um, you know, the number one thing is going to be for my son, right? I mean, you know, you, you sort of have to add it to your medical history, right? And then you have to add it to my son's medical history. And because now, you know, and that's another thing that I Googled the crap out of, right? Like, what are the chances? Like, does it go up for my son now? And it seems pretty inconclusive as to whether or not it does. Um, you know, obviously my dad didn't have it. So, you know, it's sort of the, the where it comes from is still pretty um, foggy. It seems yeah. like a big, big picture. They don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I can, you know, so now when my son has, you know, his regular checkups, they're, they're checking, they're, they're looking cause it's on his chart. It's on my chart. But when he hits that age, you know, that can be like the number one thing that I can pass on is for my son to be informed and educated and advocating. And then, you know, to not make it weird with his people, right? Like my dad had it and he's fine. Look at him. But, you know, I'm going to spread, you know, detection and self exams and all that kind of stuff. So for me in survivorship, I mean, my son is going to be my legacy, right? My son is going to be, hopefully the best thing that I ever did. Mm-hmm. And if I can pass, you know, those, those skills, those tools, you know, ridding the stigma that surrounds testicular cancer through him, that's going to be like the number one thing that I think that I can do. That's great. That was a great answer. Do you have any advice for anybody who's currently staring down the barrel? So if you're currently staring down the battle, I mean, the, the number one thing is to, advocate for yourself, right? If you don't like a particular treatment, you know, doctor's offices, I feel like when I was growing up, it was always one of those things where, well, the doctor recommended it. So the doctor must be right because the doctor went to medical school and I did it. Right. But you have these doctors who are seeing probably dozens of patients a day. Like you said, if you're not in one of these high volume places, they might not know what to look for. They might not, they might not ask you the question, that will trigger an answer that, you know, sparks the next step. Um, So whenever you have appointments, whether it's FaceTime, phone call, in person, come with questions, right? I remember one one of the the first time I went um, to my primary care, you know, the wait was a little bit long and I had a ton of questions and, you know, he dropped a line like, you know, you've been waiting so long, I don't wanna waste your time. And I was like, no. I've been waiting a long time and I have questions and you're going to answer them. Right. Don't, don't rush me out of here because you were late. Right. You're going to stay and I'm going to ask all these questions. Granted, they were all sort of, you know, I can't diagnose anything now. You need to get an ultrasound, et cetera, et cetera. But Mm -hmm. you know, you can advocate for yourself. You can be your biggest, your biggest supporter. um, Especially when it comes to the doctor's offices 
you know, they will answer eventually, but you should never leave an appointment saying like, oh, I wish I had asked X, right? Either ask it or if you remember after, call them back. Don't wait till your next follow-up two weeks later, a month later, three months later, whatever it is, right? Ask, ask the questions because that's the only way that you're going to, you're going to find the answers, even if it's something that you already know, or it's something that um, is just sort of affirming what you already thought you knew, right? Let the doctors do that because that's the only thing that's going to get you through. Like you said, staring down the barrel, right? If you know that you have a doctor or a medical team or whatever um, that's on the same page as you, that's the only thing that's going to, that's going to help you get to whatever the, the next step is. Yeah. Perfect answer. You got tons of perfect answers. <laughs> Do you want to shout out any uh, of your doctors at, at Sloan that maybe somebody in the area could, could reach out to if they're facing? Sure. I mean, it's, it's Dr. Scheinfeld. Um, he's, he's the, the chair of the urologic oncology department. Um, and it was one of those things where you called like the main Sloan number and they, and you told them what was happening and it was boop, boop, boop. You were in his office and he had everything done. I mean, when I say from my first phone call to my RPLND was maybe five weeks, right? So stage two to remission in, in five weeks. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And you know, I don't know if you've ever been to New York, but like, driving down the FDR drive, Sloan Kettering's right there on the side. Every time I drive down, I always give a little wave, give a little, <laughs> give a little salute, a little, a little thank you. Um, every time I drive by, um, and you know, I still go back. I'm, I'm up to now every four months for surveillance, uh, blood, blood work and stuff. I did a year of three months. Now I think it's two years of four months. Um, but I just get my, my blood done. I do a quick chest x-ray and, uh, that's it. But yeah, I mean, everybody, at at Sloan, but yeah, Dr. Scheinfeld, the surgeon, uh, outstanding. 10 out of 10 would recommend. (laughs) Do you have any final thoughts? Um, I mean, I think it's just super important what you're doing. Um, you know, it's again, you know, this is not a knock on other cancers, right? But breast cancer has an entire month. Prostate cancer has an entire month. Um, but testicular cancer is the one that will most affect, what is it? I, what's the stat? I think it's 18 to 45 male. Like that, that's the most predominant cancer or something like that. Um, yeah, I think TCAF is, says it's 15 to 44. 15 to 44, right? So that's a huge chunk of people that are going to, unfortunately, right, get it. At, at a certain point, some number of people are going to get it. And I feel like as just in our culture, we're just like, well, pink is breast cancer. So like I'm pink October breast cancer and like what you're doing and what I'm trying to do on a smaller scale is just like acknowledge that there are other ones out there because, you know, I'm kind of knee deep in it now, but when I first noticed something was wrong with my left ball, you know, 14, 15 months ago, it was, it was me and Google that, 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 that was all I had. Right. Yeah. But then, you know, you start getting the story out and then all of a sudden, you know, a cousin has a friend who's fine. And, um, you realize that it's, it is, the stigma is definitely coming off. And I think it's definitely 
due to things like you and things like what survivors like 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 me can can do on a on a, on a smaller scale. Absolutely, it sounds like you're doing a great job. Thanks, man. You too. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> Thanks for uh, for talking today. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. For more information, visit testiscancer.org. You can also follow us on social media at Testis Cancer. We're on Facebook at Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation.